0: economics there are the things we think of as global like say free trade and the things we think of as personal maybe what you do when you're noodling around on the internet but of course now more than ever it's all connected i'm lizzie o'leary and this is marketplace weekend where the economy meets real life and this week we have a series of stories that go big to small and back again so let's start with one of the biggies President Trump's recent tariffs on China and their warnings of retaliatory ones on the U.S., which leads to talk of a trade war. And usually the whole point of conflict is that there's a winner and a loser. But is that the case when it comes to a trade war? For more on this, we got Monica DeBall on the line to help us with a little trade war context. She's a senior fellow
1: at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. The long and short of it is, you know, trade wars start for various reasons, but the bottom line is that there are no winners. When we economists kind of look around and try to see, you know, in the end, what was the effect, how were were different economies affected and so on, the conclusions always, you know, jobs were lost, um, growth was hit. Um And really, you can't find any evidence that anybody ends up winning in any sense of the word. Yeah.
0: Politicians often say, well, I'm doing this to try to protect our workers or protect our industry. And, you know, we often see a series of kind of escalating tariffs Um how, how come no one can win if that's, if that's the case? You know, if, if the political rhetoric is I'm doing this so we win, but you as an economist are saying, uh-uh, it, it just doesn't work like that.
1: Well, I think it kind of goes back to the way that trade works in the first place, right? I mean, people generally have this idea that, you know, when you trade with someone um, – Depending on you know what your metric is for how you're doing with respect to this other country that you're trading with, so whether you measure it by your tri- bilateral trade deficit or something else, there's this sense that always somebody's winning and somebody me- meaning that somebody else is losing. So it's kind of a what we call a zero sum game. If there are no winners, then.
0: Are the losses spread around or, or who are the losers here?
1: You know, do we feel things equally? So the losers can be very concentrated. Um, so if we if we look back, for example, at a very, very recent example. So back to 20, 2001, 2002, when we had steel tariffs under the Bush administration, um, we know from that particular experience, those tariffs, when they came into effect, they were supposed to be in place for three years But they were actually, they were in place for, you know, much, much less than that, Uh, much less time than that. And the reason was that so many more jobs were lost in other sectors that were not directly in steel, but were either users of steel in some capacity, direct or indirect. Um, that you know, it just turned out that actually the losses for the economy were a lot bigger than whatever the politicians thought, thought they would gain from instituting those tariffs in the first place. Sometimes it's not as visible, so sometimes you know it it, it can be, um, it can it can be sort of seen as something that. With the benefit of hindsight, probably had a very deep impact on the economy, but it's hard to measure real time. So I'll give you an example of that. Yay. Take the Smoot-Hawley Act, um, act of um, the 1930s, you know. This crash. is probably and, the
0: one trade thing that, that you know, someone who went to a civics class in middle school can name.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a that was an event so that was an action taken by the us that created a lot of retaliation all over the world every single country was affected by this because the the trade war was broad and wide ranging and you know it was it was many it hit many many countries and what now we have i think the ability to say when we look back we can say with some certainty that the Great Depression was made a lot worse and probably was more prolonged as a result of the trade war that ensued from the Smoot-Hawley Act. But this isn't something, for instance, that we would have been able to observe real time if we had, you know, if we put ourselves back in the 30s and we were trying to say something about how these things were playing out all over the world, it would have been very difficult. You know, if we think about this war metaphor, and maybe I'm hitting it over the head a
0: little bit, but is it possible to sort of sit on the sidelines in a situation like this? You know, be a Switzerland or is trade so global and interconnected these days that that it just doesn't work like that?
1: Well, that's an excellent question because when we look at these past instances of trade wars, there are some scholars who have, who have made the point that, you know, countries that sit them out and countries that don't, don't participate, they end up benefiting in some ways because the trade, the, the, some trade gets diverted to them. And probably, you know, there may have been instances in the past where some of that may have been true. Um, these days, that's very hard to see because all countries that are actively engaged in trade are all very much interconnected. So in other words, trade doesn't happen just between two places anymore. So if you get, for instance, a trade war between the U.S. and China, even those countries that decide to sit out and say, we're not involved in this, we're going to be Switzerland, we're going to be neutral, they will be hit because they are involved in these supply chains and in this integrated way of production and of and of trading that ends up affecting them nonetheless.
0: Well, yeah, trade wars are, I guess, you know, they are political. And whether you say that in a cynical way or someone attempting to, you know, kind of reflect what their constituents want, uh, what do we know about how trade wars rebound on those constituents, on consumers? You know, what happens to them in a trade war?
1: So ultimately, um, because you're going to have this situation where tariffs are being erected, non-tariff barriers are being erected as well, what happens is that there is, an ef- there, is a- there is an effect on prices, and that's measurable and that's visible. So for consumers, what they will see is prices will start to go up. They may not associate that directly with the kind of policies that are being put in place, so they may not associate that directly with protectionism, but they will feel it. So it'll make a difference um, in, in people's lives, and that's usually how it goes.
0: Monica DeBolle is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Thank you so much for talking with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're going to stay with China and go from trade wars to the Internet. China blocks a lot of things on the web, but for years, firms could bypass this using certain tools like VPNs, virtual private networks. Well, the government in China is closing a lot of these loopholes. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack joins me from Shanghai. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Walk me through what is blocked in China. Well, the list is always changing, but for now,
2: Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and all things Google are blocked here. Now, there are Chinese equivalents of these tools, but for all intents and purposes, China's Internet is really an intranet behind what's known as the Great Firewall.
0: Uh, And how do they go about blocking access? I mean, you mentioned some of these are entire sites, but, you know, what do they do? Well, they block the IP address
2: if they want to block the entire sites, but some of the filters have become very sophisticated. So sometimes they can block specific articles within a news site. Uh, They can block particular search terms. Chinese internet companies are regularly given lists of blocked keywords that, of course, stops you from searching them on search engine sites, but also on instant messages like Hmm. on our WeChat app. So, for example, searches that do not follow the China government's line on Taiwan, Tibet, and uh, Tiananmen. Those are for sure blocked. Um, But this list, of course, is always evolving. And the problem is, is that oftentimes you don't even know if it is blocked or if it's an internet error, because sometimes it just shows up and says it's an internet error, or sometimes the page is still
0: loading, 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 but it never comes up. And, you know, the, the reason that we're talking now is this question that foreign businesses have sort of found a way to circumvent this. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. Uh, So there are ways to tunnel under this great firewall using what's known as a virtual private network or VPNs. Now, individuals can use these consumer VPNs. You pay a few dollars a month and you can download a software before arriving in China and you can turn it on and it helps mask your computer's address and encrypt the data but it's sort of a cat and mouse game because one server will work today but it might not work tomorrow because the sensors have found it and blocked it. Um, So it becomes a kind of an awkward situation where uh, sometimes you really want to know what's working but I can't really ask my friends or other people what's working for you because you're worried that the communication channel that you're using is being monitored and if the Chinese sensors get a hold of it they might block that channel as well. For businesses with headquarters abroad sometimes they can connect to each other through what's known as a site to site VPN. And in this case, this is what the government in China is no longer allowing in a bid to what they say is an effort to clean up the internet.
0: If you're a business, I would imagine that, that this could, you know, put certainly uh, a lot of money at risk. What, what are they going to do in response to this attempt to, you know, clean up in air quotes? Well, China's government says that you can access the
2: internet abroad if you use their dedicated line, Mm. which poses two problems. Now, one is cost, because uh, the site-to-site VPN I mentioned earlier, that only requires you to subscribe to a regular internet package and then whatever IT help you need on both ends. But the dedicated line can cost up to $630 just for the setup and a monthly fee that could go as high as $3,000 a month. So it's not a great solution for smaller companies. And, of course, even if you had the money, the second concern is security. How safe is this information that's going through a China telecom line? And, of course, there are wider concerns. Here's Carly Ramsey with the consultancy group Control Risk.
3: It's starting to trigger some interest and, and concern about what else might be affected in terms of, you know, how businesses, you know, send their information in and out of China.
2: And so you can see there's just a lot of uncertainty right now. But what is clear is that the cost of doing business in China will increase.
0: Jennifer Pack, our China correspondent, speaking to me from Shanghai. Thank you so much. Thank you. Whether we like it or not, we spend a lot of our lives at work, which is why Allison Green from Ask a Manager joins us every month to answer your questions. Work-life, life-work balance, all that stuff. This month, it's the Ask a Manager Ask Me Anything. Allison, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so this is our AMA time. We have loads of questions, uh, both from listeners, from your inbox. But I want to jump right in uh, with a question we got from a listener about money. Let's play that one.
4: Hello, my name is Matt. I'm an engineer from Newport News, Virginia. What is the best way to ask your boss for a raise or a promotion? I've been in my position for about 3 years, and over the past year I've been taking on additional responsibilities and completing tasks outside of my job function. I don't like bragging about my accomplishments, but and I don't want to come across looking greedy or entitled but I feel that I've demonstrated the initiative and knowledge to take on a more ambitious and higher-paying role. What is the best way to approach this?
0: Oof. Okay. I think this is a question that sort of bedevils everyone, and I want to know what your takes are.
3: It's perfectly appropriate to ask for your salary to be revisited. It's a very normal thing to do, Um, and it, it can be pretty straightforward. I think sometimes people think they'll have to do some big presentation with a PowerPoint and really make the case for it. Generally, you don't have to do that. It can be pretty brief. You know, you can ask for a meeting with your boss, say that you've been taking on more responsibilities, the level of contributions that you make has been increasing, and you'd like to talk about adjusting your salary to reflect it. Your boss is not likely to think this is an outrageous request or to respond as if you're being greedy or entitled. To your boss, if your boss is even semi-reasonable, This is a pretty routine business conversation.
0: Yeah, I guess one question I have, you know, I think people do, and I I certainly know women who have felt they have to, you know, write themselves a script and get really amped for this conversation. And once they've gotten through it, maybe they did it a few years ago, they're scared to do it again. If you have had the conversation and maybe you got a raise, um, when is it appropriate to bring it up again?
3: To some extent, it depends on the salary practices in your office. But as a general default rule, if it's been more than a year and you are contributing at a higher level than you were a year ago, you can go ahead and ask.
0: All right. I want to move on to our next question, which is from uh, Chuck Kesters in Hawaii, which combines a little personal finance with some macroeconomics. Here in Hawaii, the labor market is tight and living expenses are some of the highest in the country. I'm hiring right now or at least attempting to, my HR department's on the mainland, New Mexico, a vastly different socioeconomic environment. The Home Office says a starting wage of $13 an hour is too high, yet so far no applicants will agree to work at this rate. How do I convince the HR department an entry-level salary is set too low? Thanks in advance for any help, and aloha. Uh, all right, Allison, how, how how would you handle this sort of you know differential between what is paid in one place and and what's necessary in another place
3: well the fact that no one will agree to that wage should be a pretty convincing sign but if that's not working providing real data might help you know do wage surveys of what similar jobs in your area pay Ask candidates what pay they're looking for and keep track of that. Track the number of your offers that get turned down. Some industry groups do nationwide salary surveys broken down by geography that you can buy. So if you have a trade group that you can consult, they might have data you can use too. So I would say be really clear about all of those facts to your HR people. See if that gets you anywhere. And if it doesn't, ask what they suggest you do about the fact that no one will accept your offers.
0: Um, You know, we're talking about the ability to to turn down a a job because of low pay or wages that weren't quite where an applicant would want them. It's a very different situation for a lot of other people. And I I want to play one piece of tape from a caller we had.
4: Hi, this is Kyle from Hanover, Pennsylvania. And my question is, what can someone who has been released from prison or is on parole do to increase their chances of getting a job, assuming – that they are qualified for a position, and assuming that the reason for their incarceration is not related to the position for which they are applying. Thank you very much.
0: All right, so what can an ex-offender do uh, to get a job? This is a really tough question for a lot of people.
3: Yeah, this can be really tough. There are a lot of great nonprofit organizations that will work with people with criminal records and help them with job placement. It can also help to almost do a, a reset, to get into a vocational training program or do some sort of schooling which will help you develop a track record of good work. It'll give you something on your resume and it'll help you build your network of references, which is really important because the more people you have who will vouch for you and give you personal recommendations, the easier this will be. And actually for that reason, another thing to think about is volunteering. And I'd say when it comes to interviewing, the best thing to do is to be open and honest about the conviction and be able to talk about how you've changed, if that's something an employer is likely to be concerned about.
0: I want to shift a little bit uh, to an email we got. Uh, This is from someone known as Christina. She says she's dealing with a very religious coworker, someone who prays at their desk, wants to talk about faith during breaks, and Christina is uncomfortable with this.
3: Um, What can she do? Should she do? What do you think? So this is tricky. The praying at her desk and the wanting to talk about her faith with others are two different issues. Employers don't have to allow someone to proselytize to someone who doesn't want to hear it. And in fact, they might actually have a legal obligation to prevent it if if people feel harassed by unwanted religious talk. So with that part of that, you can start by telling the coworker that you don't want to discuss religion at work. And if they continue to push it, at that point, let your employer know what's going on and that it's unwelcome. With praying at her desk, in most cases, the employer... Well, in many cases, the employer might need to allow that unless it's creating a disruption. That's something you can bring up with the manager. If it's just that the subject matter is making you uncomfortable, you can still bring that up, but it might be harder for the employer to intervene. So with that piece of it, it actually might be easier to ask about sitting elsewhere or even just consider headphones if the manager seems uneasy about intervening.
0: All right. I want to turn to your inbox uh, and some of the questions there. Uh, this one is is definitely an eye catcher. Um, a colleague who says, I love you, to a coworker. W- what is that story? What is going on?
3: <laughs> this one is interesting. So the person who wrote in has a coworker who she says is generally a nice guy, except that he keeps casually saying, I love you all the time. So she'll tell him that she's going to send him a report and he'll respond with, great, I love you. Or he'll come into her office and he'll say, hello, love of my life. She says she's confident. Oh, boy. <laughs> right.
0: This is, this is not like, Alice and I've been thinking about you for years. This is like, it's sort of a tossed-off phrase.
3: Yes. And she says that she's confident that there isn't a romantic undertone to it, but that he's clearly doing it when he wants something from her. And she's uncomfortable in particular yeah. because he only says it to women, never to men. So, So what do you do? I think she can be pretty straightforward about it. The next time he says it, she could say something like, hey, all the love talk is a bit much. Can you take it down a notch? Or, you know, I know it's not your intention, but the love talk makes me uncomfortable. Thanks for understanding. He might think that she's taking it too seriously, but that's okay. Right. As long as he stops saying it to her. Although if he does push back, I think at that point it's worth saying, you know, I've never heard you say it to a man. And that alone makes me not want you to say it to me.
0: Okay, I'm going to throw you one of my questions. I am someone who has, on more than one occasion, accidentally said, okay, great, love you, bye, um, on a professional call or on a professional voicemail. Ignore it or apologize and try to salvage things?
3: (laughs) You're not alone. I've heard other people report that. I've also heard from younger employees who accidentally call their boss mom or dad, which is mortifying. (laughs) Um, I think in most cases... Laugh it off. People understand that it's not a real declaration of love, that your voice is sort of on autopilot. Would I call back and leave a whole separate message addressing it? Maybe. Um, <laughs> if only to give yourself peace of mind so that you're not wondering and worrying what they might think.
0: Allison, thank you. We we have so many questions, not enough time to get to all of them. Um, if you are listening and you have some things you are trying to get a hold of at work or that are driving you crazy, send us your questions for Allison. Allison. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org, and you can check out past advice columns on our website, marketplace.org, and look for Ask a Manager. Allison Green from Ask a Manager, as always, thank you. Thank you. If you look at any list of the most expensive places to live in the United States, San Francisco and the Bay Area in general are almost always near the top. And it turns out this high cost of housing is changing the lives of urban Native Americans in the area. Reporter Jamie Noisecat wrote about this issue for High Country News.
5: Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You start
0: your piece by introducing us to Joe Wakazoo. Can you tell me a little bit about him and, and what his story is?
5: Joe is a figure from um, my childhood, really. I, I, I'm i uh, a Native person who grew up in in Oakland, California. Oakland has a very storied um, Native community and and Native history. There was a program in in 1952 uh, called the Federal Urban Indian Relocation Program, and so a number of Native families were moved from reservations to cities, and Oakland was one of the cities where they ended up. And Joe um, was a character in that community. His mother, uh, who we all just called Grandma Wakazoo or just Grandma, was kind of a matriarch in the community. She was, you know, an OG of the American Indian movement. Um, and Joe would always come to the Thursday night uh, drum and dance practices at the Intertribal Friendship House on Inter- International Boulevard in uh, East Oakland. And I, as a as a young kid, you know, learning how to do our traditional dances, etc., uh, would watch Joe and and learn a lot of my uh, my first dance moves watching him hmm. at a. Uh, Dance practice, so I, I knew him growing up and um, so that was a really you know big connection and part of the story is that this is a family that um, you know is big in the community and that I've, I've known for pretty much my whole life.
0: There are a lot of stories written about gentrification in the Bay Area, but you were looking specifically at Native people and and, and really this sort of what had happened to a lot of the families who were moved there in this program that you talked about. Um, what happened to Joe?
5: So Joe became homeless in October of of 2016. Um, he had fallen on on hard times that really actually began um, more with 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 loved ones and family. So his his partner of of a, a couple decades, Jennifer, passed away uh, in 2013, and he fell into a deep depression. And he you know struggled to to find work. He was getting older, and eventually. Um, he He was sharing a section eight uh, apartment with his with his daughter Phyllis and you know one thing led to another and they kind of fell apart and he he moved out and onto the streets so uh, although he you know has lived in a sort of state of housing insecurity for you know decades uh, this was really his first uh, trip uh, into into homelessness
0: from your reporting, how do you think the native experience in terms of gentrification, differs or does it from you know stories we hear about other big, rapidly expanding, rapidly gentrifying cities like San Francisco, Oakland, New York, et cetera.
5: Yeah, so I I think that there's um, a way in which we we talk about housing and and the story of of the housing crisis that that on the first on the one hand. Um, Really emphasizes particular, you know, winners and losers. So, winners being developers and and losers being communities of color, working class people, etc. But but what often falls out of that narrative um, is is native communities. And the reality is is that that seven in ten native people or three point seven million people actually live in cities. So we are a primarily urban demographic. There's sixty six thousand of us in the Bay Area alone. So oh. we are by no means, uh, you know, uh, uh, a marginal or unimportant um, demographic. And because, you know, we, we often live in, in some of the deepest poverty found in the United States, we are often also the uh, first and, and hardest impacted by issues of housing insecurity and displacement. Yet, in this big narrative of gentrification, because we have these, uh, you know, notions of Native people as, as stuck in the past or living in far-off distant reservations... Um, that story doesn't include us which i find to be quite ironic and 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 incorrect because if you look at the story of the united states from its inception it has been a story of, of displacement and and housing insecurity and and outright theft of ind- the indigenous home um, and so if you if you include native people back in the narrative uh, i think the narrative changes quite a bit
0: You also touched on this in your piece and the idea that, okay, well, if someone is priced out, and this is an argument we hear a lot, well, just move, which of course, you know, has a lot of barriers to it when you're talking about kind of the economics involved in moving. But when you're talking about Native people, there is also the question of what housing and housing security is like on reservations and in what I think in the popular imagination is thought of as Indian country
5: absolutely and so so the this the story sort of um you know if if Joe were to to decide to leave oakland which he's he's considered that, but he feels very much like Oakland is home, and that's where he's going to stay for now, um, his option would be to maybe return home to the, to the reservation he has uh, extended family on the Navajo Nation in uh, New Mexico in what 's called the sort of checkerboard area of the of the navajo nation, but if he if he were to move from Oakland, he actually would would just be trading one form of survival, one housing crisis for another. Because on Indian reservations, uh, there, there was an Obama-era study uh, that found that there was need for 68,000 new units of housing, 68,000 units. That's comparable, if, if you were to look at other cities with big housing plans, to what's called for in New York City's uh, 10-year housing plan. So there is an enormous need uh, in these communities for housing. And so, when, when native families decide to pick up and leave uh, from the city to the reservation, it's not like uh, you know their circumstances are getting any better or the social safety net is is widening in any way. They're they're just really trading one form of of, of survival for another.
0: When we look at housing uh, and affordable housing, are there any moves on a policy level that that might change the picture for those? you know 68,000 units or in urban areas
5: Unfortunately um in the Trump era the the only policies that seem to be moving are ones that that are that could greater uh hurt the families like families like the Waka um so the the Trump administration has has proposed 150 million dollars in cuts to what are called Indian housing block grants, which are the the block grant funding through uh, through HUD that pays for housing on on reservations in an Indian country. Um, and and to put that in perspective, the the block grants that that existed before the the Trump administration took office actually had not grown since their implementation in 1996. So, at the same time as inflation happened and as the the native population became one of the fastest growing in the United States, the funding to build homes for those people did not change. So, in effect, it actually got became a smaller pot um, and now we we have a proposal for cuts, which could be truly devastating for for Indian country and on the other hand in in cities, um you know i I actually worked for the uh New York City. Housing Department, and the problem of displacement is is really a tough um, nut to crack, which is another you know aspect of this story is that is that what do we understand to be displacement, and what sort of um, proposals might might we need to put in place to keep people in in the in their historic communities um, and you know I, I i don't think that the that what i 've reported or written aims to any sort of direct policy suggestions, but I do think that if if we were simply to respect the notion that people, um, and especially Native people as the first people of this land, deserve the dignity of maintaining their home, I think that we would start looking at these problems in a much different way.
0: Julian noiskat thank you so much.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Sports are a large part of the weekend, especially this weekend if you're into basketball. So this week's News by the Numbers is dedicated to March Madness. Here are Marketplace producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Let's get ready
6: to rumble! Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is...
7: 1,845.
6: College basketball fans, that's how many dollars you'd pay on average for tickets to see all three Final Four matchups.
7: If you bought in advance, you lucked out. Tickets cost twice as much after teams qualified for their spot. This
6: This year's March Madness tickets are more expensive than those from past tournaments.
7: And one enterprising ticket reseller is really trying to cash in, with tickets priced at $400,000 each.
6: 1.28 billion.
7: That's how many dollars advertisers spent running ads during March Madness in 2017.
6: The March Madness ad market is ranked second in sports, with pro football generating the most ad spending and pro basketball ranking third.
7: Last year, GM ran 329 ads during the tournament. AT&T aired 334 And Coca-Cola aired 268.
6: Which brings us to our last number. 19. Percent of sponsors for sports organizations are food and non-alcoholic drinks.
7: A study out of NYU found that three quarters of food ads and half of drink ads promote high-calorie, sugary products.
6: This year's NCAA corporate sponsors include Coca-Cola, Reese's, Wendy's, Buffalo Wild Wings, Nabisco, and Pizza Hut.
7: So we'll just issue a reminder that watching basketball doesn't count as exercise.
6: What about uh, dunking?
7: Oreos or basketballs? Yeah.
8: Yeah. Y'all ready for this?
0: Facebook and how much it knows about us have been in the news a lot lately. Last week on the show, Karen North, a professor at USC, talked about how businesses use the platform for advertising. Yes, brands can use our data to target ads specifically to us, but something else North said stuck out. I think that we need to realize that advertising and marketing today for brands, you you know, needs to be quality content as if you're creating entertainment. Entertainment. That's something very different from what worked a generation ago. That means advertisers have to change what they do. For example, how do you take a brand that's been around forever and sell it today? So our producer, Eliza Mills, went to visit the advertising company 72 & Sunny in Los Angeles. The firm handles advertising for Tillamook, the dairy company that's been around for 109 years. They make cheese, ice cream, yogurt. These guys head up the brand's creative
9: team. My name is Guy Borcher, and I'm a group creative director here at 72 & Sunny. My
4: name is JC Bursey and I'm a creative director here at 72 & Sunny.
0: They lead the team that made this ad, which you might remember. Hello, farmers. Hello, co-op. Hello, integrity. Hello, Molly.
2: Hello, naturally aged cheddar made by a real craftsman.
0: Hello, Dale. Hi. That was from 2016. We can't play you an ad from the early days of Telemook because most of their branding was in print. Black and white posters with the cheese in yellow. Now they use Instagram, YouTube and TV commercials, and they have a whole room dedicated to making fast turnaround ads. Here's Guy Boucher.
9: Well, what you're looking at is a room full of what well, looks like crap, but it's a lot of really cool stuff. <laughs> There's all sorts of like photographic material and like, you know, almost like miniature set designs and props and lighting equipment. Next to me, there's a room with a gigantic industrial fridge full of Tillamook stuff, cheese, ice cream. The team is in here concepting and thinking, and then they have an idea. They start trying stuff, I'm sure, like sometimes you try stuff and it's like doesn't work and you try something else. And photographing, filming, stop motion, just making stuff. So it truly looks like a maker space.
0: Guy and JC sat down to talk about how the ad game has changed and what that means for legacy brands like Tillamook.
9: Advertising is changing, but it doesn't matter. It's too communicating something to a group of people. So another company with the right values, the right tradition, it's actually great because now compared to like many decades ago where you did like maybe one film and one poster, now your message can really live in so many different places, you know, from like multiple film-like objects to to printed things, to things that live online, on the web, and social that like you want to have a lot to talk about. And Tillamook offers that.
4: The other thing about Tilmuk that's interesting is a 109-year-old brand that is still sees himself as a challenger. I think when they they go up against the bigger conglomerates in the industry uh, who can outspend them media-wise, they just have to be smarter. They have to be more nimble. And I think as, as culture and as communication has evolved, it gives them the ability to reach a wider audience, to be a bit more one-on-one with them, uh, I think the, the brand building is cumulative, though. It's like not not expecting one piece to do the entire thing. And I think that's what the Instagram example of two seconds and you know, you swipe past, that happens a lot. If you, All you're going to do is throw out a film with a message that's going to run in social, which might not be the best um, use of that media. What you would try to do more in social is engage your community a bit more. Get them to interact, uh, and over time they'll be looking for stuff from you or they'll be at least willing to watch stuff from you. And I think that 's what Tillamook you know really aims for is in that space is to kind of engage and tell a deeper story. We do stuff that's very product based and and stuff that engages fans and then stuff that just tells a, tells a deeper story about the company.
9: I think there is definitely like a hunger for that. I think our youth is so engaged right now more than ever the younger generation is going to respond to something that like has a, a, has a positive message that wants positive change. Last year we kind of turned the empty plate emoji into like food donation. So we partnered up with an organization that donates food uh, for, for kids in need. And eventually we surpassed the goal by a lot. And talking about organic like engagement, like Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner organically just saw it, retweeted it. And then people started asking how to do that. He was like, Teaching people how to how to donate and how to do how to do it and it was like for us not because it was like oh a celebrity retweeted us but it was cool to like to see that like there are some real fans out there and people that are really engaged they kind of represented like who we're trying to talk to people that like care and through that it just, he just amplified the message for us but if that wasn't a message that resonated with people with something good in it it would just be another ad you do try to do stuff that
4: that people are going to engage with and and pass and share we don't ever approach anything as like let's make let's try to make this viral. Um, but, I think just naturally, what that means is you want as many people as possible to see it
9: i think I think what 's different I think is you know there 's so much more to respond to, so much more to compete with you know not just other brands but content creators and people making things and try to be a brand squeezing in between all of that when you know even the place where the ads used to live on t v are' get, it's getting more and more like taking the back seat so I think what's changed is the competition for attention.
4: I think the driving change in the industry is going from talking to people or shouting at them, you know, often is what used to happen, to now engaging and having a dialogue. And that's because of social. That's because
9: of digital. Tillamook right now has a really big social presence across all the social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We still, from time to time, we'll do like – we we ran Oscars – spot in some markets uh, a couple years ago. And I think some of the most successful things we've done have been things we ran, started on a social thing that had a lot of engagement. It's like sometimes you have to be super reactive. Some of the best brands out there are in social media every day, reaching the audience and reacting to things. So we created a, a social approach where like, we have a little maker room, a space where like, the creative teams can sit in. And they have all the materials they need from all the food and all the cheese and ice cream in the world, Tillamook, obviously, but also, like, all the the equipment. And it's not, like, a, a gigantic photo studio with, like, super expensive equipment. It's, like, enough to be able to do things really well crafted. But what it allows us to do is, like, we also shrunk down on, like, all the layers of approvals and things that slow down the process. And we just created something that's really... High energy, super funny. Walking there, there's stuff everywhere, and the teams are just creating and making things. And it's just the energy of that room is something that could have never existed before. But I think with the speed of technology and, and the rate the culture is moving in now, you just allow for, like, look, it's not that, that you can now do this. You can't afford not to. You know, it's like creates like a really interesting, high speed idea, make it, thumbs up, thumbs up, live. That's amazing. To me, that's super exciting.
0: That was Guy Boucher and JC Abruzzi of 72 and Sunny. And if you want to see some of Tillamook's early ads for yourself, just check out our story on the web at marketplace.org. It is a big religious weekend for millions of Americans with both Passover and Easter. It turns out that many families gathering for Passover Seder are part of one of the great American marketing stories, including our producer Peter Balanon-Rosen's family.
10: Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Mitchell Rosen, and I am Peter Balanon-Rosen's father. Sup, Pops? How you doing? Great. How you doing, Peter? I'm doing well. So here at work, we are doing a story about Passover for people who don't know, can you explain what a Haggadah is? A Hagada, yeah. A book that describes the story of Passover. And uh, it also will give the instructions as to what to do during the Seder. Typically, it, it'll include songs and uh, other things that make that particular Haggadah unique when you were growing up, was there a particular kind of Haggadah that you ran into most commonly? Oh, yeah. I mean, just like everybody I grew up with, uh, we would use the Maxwell House Haggadah. Wait, so this was a coffee brand making Haggadah? Yeah, that's right, Peter. Um, I think you could probably pick them up in the grocery store right next to the uh, Maxwell House display. And that's probably where we got their Haggadot. Do you know why Maxwell House, of all brands, kind of decided to go after the Haggadah market? (laughs) Um, Why Maxwell House? Um, You know, Peter, the Jewish religion has lots of fundamental questions. And I think one of the most perplexing fundamental questions is why did we all use Maxwell House Haggadot as our Haggadot of choice? Um, (laughs) I don't think anyone really knows the answer.
0: That was Marketplace's Peter Ballinon Rosen and his father, Mitchell Rosen. But there is an answer and we have it or rather, we have a guy who has it, Ellie Rosenfeld, CEO of Joseph Jacobs Advertising. They help big brands target the Jewish market, and they've been working with Maxwell House since the 1920s, when it was owned by Cheek Neal Coffee. And since then, more than 55 million Maxwell House Passover Haggadahs have been printed. I asked Rosenfeld how this all got started.
8: Back in 1923, the Cheek Neal Coffee Company from Nashville was coming to New York, and Joe Jacobs started suggesting that they market to the Jewish consumer. If you're familiar with the Passover restrictions, aside from nothing of the five grains being leavened, um, kidney oat, legumes, are also prohibited or customarily not used at Passover time. And there were some people that were confused because the coffee bean, it says a, a bean, it looks like it's a here. bean, but it's not. If anybody knows their, their science, their botany, it's actually a fruit. And Joe Jacobs himself, not an observant Jew, He knew that and had a rabbi confirm it and certify it, as it were, and then to further connect with the market, with the product, with the holiday, they started giving out this Passover Haggadah. It was the original content marketing.
0: Why target the Jewish market?
8: The retail food business was a grocery business back then. It was easy to show them that at Passover, stores were not selling their product because, imagine, these are Jewish groceries that... You know, right Today might still be selling it. Tomorrow, Passover starts. Tomorrow night, they will not sell non-Passover foods for for 10 days. So you're able to go in and say, look at this, Mr. Salesman from Cheek Neal Coffee Company. Your product is put away in the back. It's covered with a sheet. Its its aisle is no longer available for the week. If you want an opportunity, it wasn't a this is a cultural thing. This is business.
0: How would people typically get their hands on one of these?
8: Uh, Typically, they're still free and available um, at retail. They're in the Passover aisle or in the coffee aisle. There'll be this nice stand-up device, this cardboard carrier that has them out there. And technically they're, you know, you're supposed to buy coffee and you take a Haggadah with you on your way.
0: Thinking about this in this modern way, um, do you think of this as branded content or is this, you know, a community service that comes along with a product?
8: It, it, it's somewhere in the middle where it is branded content. How do you end up with your name on not only on, on the table, in every person's hand yeah. sitting at this event? Uh, Then you have the actual trade part of it. You're selling coffee and you go into a supermarket and the supermarket wants to give this away. But in order to do that, they have to commit to Maxwell House to sell X number or purchase X number of coffee. So it has many dual purposes and at the end of the day, it is also a community service.
0: It it got a big kind of update in what, 2011? 2011. What happened and Why?
8: We've had the book really out there with minor changes over the decades. So the first number of years, uh, the size changed a little bit. Then in the 60s, they reformatted it just slightly and updated the text um, in terms of its typesetting. And that ran until the 90s. The one thing that never changed was the translation. Art, vow, and hast is just not modern. It was time to refresh the book. We went and found where things could just sound a little bit more contemporary. And then one of the the bigger issues that we did at that point was is we also gender neutralized the translation. Truth of the matter is, is that um, Maimonides, the the great thinker, says you shouldn't attribute a gender to God. But Hebrew, as other languages, have gender-specific language. And as is appropriate, when A, someone's unknown, or it's a group of people, in most cases, things go go towards the male-specific gender. And if you translate it Properly and you translate it carefully, you don't need to ascribe a gender.
0: This is one of, if not the longest running sales promotions in history. Has it boosted coffee sales?
8: It does. The retail supermarket business, their fourth quarter of the year, November, December, is big. You have Thanksgiving and Christmas, the holidays. Their next real big time of the year is Passover, and they do see a, a spike.
0: You have brought all these different versions with us, and I'm wondering, as you know someone who has looked at these and also clearly loves history. you've got the kick out of showing me some of the old ones. Do you have a favorite?
8: I really really like the original, not because it's aesthetically so pleasing. um the English is old, and the you know typeset is a little bit fuzzy, but it shows then that people already were. And companies that weren't Jewish were already accepting the fact of what, what America is about. We are a melting pot. A non-Jewish American company from the South came to New York and embraced a marketing opportunity. Let's talk about business for a second. While doing that, embraced a culture that was foreign to them. Believe me, the Cheek Neal Coffee Company from Nashville didn't know much about Jews in Passover before they came and met Joe.
0: Ellie Rosenfeld, thank you very much.
8: My pleasure. Have a happy Passover.
0: If you want to see pictures of the Maxwell House Haggadah and how it's changed over time, just go to Marketplace.org. Next week on Marketplace Weekend, have you done your taxes yet? Come on, it's the season. Until April 17th, that is. And do you take the standard deduction or do you prefer to itemize? Well, one study says we're leaving money on the table. That story and more coming up next week. And that is it for Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced this week by Peter Belanon-Rosen, Eliza Mills, and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Ben Holliday is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.